So if you'll now join me, could you please stand out of respect for God's word? And our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 16, 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word, it's true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, David. Well, yeah, I just want to echo just what everyone has said. It's so good to be worshiping uh, Jesus with you to this morning as we gather. Uh, and uh, if you're able to stay for the newcomer's lunch, if you're new, we'd love to have you there explaining more of the vision and values and history of our church uh, and the DC Leader training. If you are a DC Leader, really prioritize attending that. It's going to be a great time of equipping of how to study God's word. David did a great job with all those announcements, so I won't uh, repeat those. But I do want to say that um, uh, this morning is a really special morning for our church because we are finishing up a year and a half long study through the book of Acts. Acts feels like a, a huge accomplishment to say we've got the 40 different sermons we've done through the book of Acts. Towards the end, it started to feel more like wandering for 40 years in the desert kind of thing. We're like, hey, so guess what? Paul goes to a city, he preaches the gospel, he gets beat up. Guess what's going to happen next week? He's going to go to a city, he's going to preach the gospel, he's going to get beat up, that kind of thing going on. But the reason we've been spending so much time and going so slow through this series is because over the last two years, the, as we all know, the American church has been rocked in so many ways. A lot of our weaknesses have been exposed, a lot of the ways that we have uh, misprioritize some, some uh, cultural values and, and not put enough emphasis on the things of Jesus. That has been exposed. Um, and so after that uh, season of COVID and lockdown coming out of that, we were really praying about what God has for our church. And this, the emphasis that came up is saying um, God's church is the most beautiful thing in the universe. Okay? It's such a beautiful thing that Jesus was willing to die for it in order to redeem it and purify it and make her his bride so that he can spend eternity with his bride and all the glory that the church deserves because of Jesus' love for her. And as American Christians and as Christians all over the world, we don't always live up to that beauty of our identity. We don't always live out what it means to be a corporate church together, worshiping God and reflecting the glory of who Jesus has called us to be. And so what we started to pray through is saying is if we're going to more accurately reflect who it is that Jesus is, is calling us to be, um, what are the tools from scripture that we could see uh, that, that this best taking place? And what we found is the book of Acts is an incredible template of what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the local church. There's this amazing quote from Erasmus, who was a, a medieval theologian, and he says that um, the, the book of Acts provides the foundations for the newborn church, through which we hope that the church in ruins will be reborn. Okay, and like I said, these last few years, it's felt like the church in America has been in ruins. And so as we've studied this book of Acts, we're praying that God would rebuild us, that he would be, we would be reborn closer into the image of what he is calling us to be uh, as a local church. And so, uh, so with that, we, we, wanna, we spent these last 40 weeks diving into that. We've seen this beautiful picture of, of what the church is called to be. And we know that um, important things, once you finish them, uh, you can't ever just lay them aside, right? Like once you graduate college, you're not done learning. Okay, when, like if you run a marathon, it's not like you can 
sit the rest of your life on the couch and eating potato chips kind of thing. Once we finish this book of Acts, this task of rebuilding our church is not complete, but we pray that by God's grace that this book of Acts will have been a good foundation for what we're praying God does in our church and through our church as we move forward. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to dive one last time uh, into the book of Acts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your presence here with us this morning. I thank you for the fact that we can uh, come to you and and study your word and know that uh, for all the questions we have, for all the difficulties we experience, for all the ways we struggle, Lord, we know that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness, and we encounter that chiefly in your word. Uh, We're so grateful, Lord, that you loved us enough to reveal your son to us through the scriptures, that when we study these, these words, that's not just ink on a page, but it is the actual words of life that our souls need to thrive. So I pray that as we approach this this morning, it wouldn't just be uh, listening to a talk or studying a history lesson, but our hearts would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the, the beauty of your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. So as we get going, oh, last week in Acts, uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's Bibles on the tables, page 937. Uh, we always want to make sure we have the text open in front of us and out. Uh, at, um, the, the format this morning that we're going to do is we're going to study the last few verses of Acts. Uh, we're going to then kind of answer the question, what happened next? Like, what's the rest of the story after the books of Acts ended? How, how do we end up here? Then we're going to spend some time in discussion like we do every week, a little bit shorter time this, this morning. And then I'm going to come back up for like 10 minutes and we're going to recap the whole book of Acts and just say, what are the major themes that God has shown us over these last 40 weeks in this, in, in this study. So uh, as we get going, let's, let's pick it up in Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. It says, after three months, well, I actually set this stage, in case you weren't here last week. So Paul uh, was arrested in Jerusalem two and a half years before this, was re- or before this uh, section we're going to read this morning. Um, he uh, spent two years in prison. He was shipwrecked on an island. He spent six, uh, three months on the island, a total of a six-month journey from uh, Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, he's a prisoner for the gospel, and now he's completing his journey to Rome. This is the final travel log of his journey. So uh, Acts chapter 28, verse 11. Uh, after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petoli. There we found brothers, and we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Okay, that, that sentence is so significant. And so we came to Rome. It's a very momentous sentence in this book of Acts. It, it's, it's, I'm sure with that writing, uh, Paul would have felt a huge sense of relief. Like I said, it was a two and a half year journey from the time when Jesus told Paul while he was in prison, you will testify about me before Caesar in Rome. From that moment that Jesus promised that, it took him two and a half years to get there. So after a, a shipwreck and all kinds of different troubles, he finally arrives. There's a sense of relief if we finally made it. But even deeper, uh, this is the, the completion of an eight-year goal, that at least eight years, that Paul would have had. When he wrote the letter to the Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 1, he tells the church in Rome, I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And that was written at least eight years before this. So, so this is this, this near decade-long desire that Paul has had to arrive in Rome. And with it, you can, you can understand the sense of significance that it would have felt for Paul to step in 
into this city. Okay, Paul is the greatest evangelist with the greatest message arriving in the greatest city in the ancient world. Okay, so, so we've all, um, it's like sometimes weird to talk about R-rated movies at church, but we've all seen Gladiator. All the guys are like, that's totally my favorite movie, right? So you get a little bit of a sense of the emotion that, that Paul would have had in arriving in Rome with that, that, that movie, that scene where they, they arrive and they see the Colosseum and this comment is like, boy, I didn't know that men could build such grandeur, such big things. But, but this idea of, of what Rome is is so much more than just the capital city of the empire. It's more than just a city with big buildings. For the ancient world, it was the very heart and soul of what they thought an empire should represent. Okay, so, so like if you, when I was in eighth grade, I went to Washington, D.C. for the first time. And that feeling you get of, of seeing our capital is but a drop in the bucket compared to what people in the ancient world would have experienced when they arrived at Rome. But, but here's the amazing thing is this moment, this, when Paul arrives in the city, it is a significant stop in world history that is a, a marker of the downfall of the most significant empire that the world had ever seen. I mean, in, within a few hundred years, Christianity will supplant the Roman Empire as the most significant influence in the ancient world. And we see the beginnings of that here. Uh, uh, Christianity is not some backwater religion that a few uh, unimportant Jewish men and women in, in Jerusalem believe. This is something that's going to literally change the course of history of the entire world. Because if you think about it, uh, you can't meet any Romans today. Uh, you, you can read about Rome in the history books, but you can meet Christians in every corner of the earth. Okay, like the, the, the significance of Christianity and what Jesus has done is, is, uh, pales in comparison, or it's so great compared to what Rome would have represented. But, but all of that, all of that historical significance, there's something even greater that we see in this sentence when, when Luke writes, and so we arrived at Rome. The greater thing that we see here is this reminder that Jesus keeps his promises. When Jesus gives us his promise, we are guaranteed, we are assured that that is going to take place. And so in Acts 23, 11, this was, like I said, two and a half years ago uh, before this, um, Jesus appears in Paul's uh, prison cell, and this is what he says. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So, so think about that for a second. Let that sink in. Jesus the creator and the Lord of the universe made a physical appearance to Paul in his prison cell. And he promised him that no matter how long it took, he would arrive in Rome and testify to the good news of the gospel before Caesar. And Jesus, the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who holds every cell and every uh, atom in the universe together by the word of his power, when he makes a promise, it is guaranteed to come to pass. Jesus is always keeping his promises. So that means for us, whatever we experience, we can rest on the fact that Jesus keeps his promises. So, so in, in your struggles, uh, in your immaturities and my immaturities, that the parts of my, my sin that still exist in my life, the fact that I ache to no longer be a work in progress, the fact that we all experience that, Jesus keeps his promises, which means when you read in Philippians 1, When Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. No no matter what those struggles are you're going through that you think this will never get over, I will never conquer this struggle. Jesus keeps his promises. He will one day bring to completion that work that he began in you. It also means that Jesus keeps his promises when you are experiencing loneliness or isolation or abandonment or feel like no one is there with you or no one is for you. Jesus keeps his promises. So when we read in Hebrews 13, it says, For Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. 
Jesus always keeps his promises. And also that means that in your suffering, in the pain that you experience, in the parts of this world that are broken and cause so much pain and anguish and suffering in your heart, Jesus keeps his promises. So when we read in Lamentations 3, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jesus keeps his promises in our sufferings. But it also means that uh, all of Jesus' promises are true, which means that we are also promised in Scripture that we will experience difficulty. Jesus promises us in John 16. says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is why this verse is so important when you talk about like um, heresies like the prosperity gospel that would say Jesus only wants you happy and healthy and everything going your way. Jesus promises us tribulation, but he also promises that that tribulation, that that suffering will not have the final say. He will one day reveal his power as he triumphs over all of that. And so we get a look at a story like this, some, some insignificant detail, seemingly insignificant detail in the history of the world. A, a prisoner from Jerusalem arrives in Rome. Okay, but what that insignificant detail shows us is that Jesus keeps his promises. And if Jesus keeps his promises, we can have hope. So the problem, though, is uh, in the middle of Jesus keeping his promises, I tend to forget that that's the case, right? I tend to forget that Jesus is always true to his word. But out of his love for us, God always provides things to encourage us and remind us that he is true to his word. Let's look at verse 15 and 16. It says, and, and, they, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so, so what we see is that those two places are our historical uh, places that we know where they're at through archaeology, but, and they are 30 and 40 miles away from where Paul would have been. So Christians that already existed in Rome, those same Christians that Paul wrote the letter of Romans to, heard that Paul had arrived in Rome, and they traveled 30 or 40 miles on foot in order to be with Paul and to provide encouragement to him as a prisoner for Jesus. Think about the amount of love that that demonstrates. I mean, a 30 or 40 mile hike, that's a long ways to go on foot in order to bring someone some encouragement. And what that shows us is this ministry of presence is such an important thing. Your physical presence with someone who is suffering is the most important gift that you can give them. What this has reminded me of is how, how often I fail to love and encourage people in this way. Here, here's my common tactic when I know someone is suffering. I send them a text, I say I'm praying, and then I end it with, uh, let me know if you need anything. Right? Can you imagine if the Christians in, in Rome had said, hey, Paul, let me know if you need anything. He's like, uh, I'm in prison. There's actually quite a lot I would need from you right about now. But what's the problem with that line that I use in a text to someone of let me know if you need anything, that is so unloving because the person who's experiencing suffering, I'm saying, hey, here, I have an assignment for you. Okay? I want you to evaluate your life, figure out if there's any needs that I can meet for you, and then I want you to have the courage to reach out to me and, and give me the, the, uh, the answer to my question of how I can help you. But what these Christians do and what, what Christians who are filled with the Spirit have done for centuries, what we're all called to do is when someone is in pain, just show up. Be that physical presence in their life. Don't ask them if they need anything. Bring that meal for them. Okay? Don't, don't ask if you can help with their kids. Go show up at their house and take their kids to the park with their permission, right? Otherwise, it's kidnapping and you could <laughs> give you a rest. But in general, like, uh, love each other well enough to know what they need and provide for those needs. That's what these Christians are doing, and that's the encouragement that Paul gets. I, I love this. It says that Paul took courage from that. 
Okay, that, that, even that word encouragement, we, use, we talk about that all the time. It means to pour courage into someone. And the reason that's important is if Paul needs encouragement, then I sure know that I need encouragement as well. Right? Our, our souls leak courage. We need to continually have courage poured into us by the body of Christ. And, and it, it's not just the body of Christ. It's any means of grace that God has given us to bring courage to our souls. And there's so many, a God in his infinite love for us and his wisdom and kindness has given us so many different tools and means of grace to give us courage when we lack it, when our souls leak. So think about even like studying the word together. Like the, the Bible is God's gift for you to pour courage into your soul when you're struggling. This is God's word. It is true and it's given out of his love. And the reason that phrase means so much is because it reminds our souls that we can find the courage we need in these words. Okay, like God has given us the means of grace of prayer. The fact that you can talk to the creator of the universe as you talk to your father is an amazing gift of, of God. The fact we can commune with him and find courage from that. When we gather together to worship, okay, whether we worship through singing or through um, uh, giving our finances or serving one another or taking communion or, or, or witnessing baptisms or being baptized and remembering our baptism, all of those acts of worship are things that God uses to bring courage to our souls. And when we go for a walk in creation, look at the beauty of the mountains and reminded that the heavens declare the glory of God. And we have this amazing showcase in Colorado of how wonderful of a creator God is. That, that gets our minds, our eyes off of ourselves and shows us how great God is. That pours courage into our souls when we do that. When we engage the disciplines of, of fasting or, or journaling or meditating or, or feasting or resting, all of those things are gifts from God because he loves us and he wants to provide courage for us. And so for us here as a church, our, our mission statement is we want to be a place where all people can experience the love of Jesus through the love of his people. And I think most often the tool that God uses most frequently to pour courage into Christians who are suffering or discouraged is one another. Okay, as we love one another, as Christ has loved us, that's when we can find out that Jesus keeps his promises and often he keeps his promise of encouragement through his people. We are often the answer to the prayers that our neighbors and our friends and our family are praying, asking Jesus for. And so all of that is a tool from Jesus. Jesus keeps his promises and he gives us encouragement, which is going to lead us to the very end of this book of Acts. When we believe that Jesus is true to his promises, when Jesus gives us encouragement, that always produces two things that we see in the life of Paul, faithfulness to his calling and a boldness in his witness. And so when we believe Jesus keeps his promises and that uh, he provides means of encouragement through the common grace of, uh, that he has given us, we should also find faithfulness to our calling and boldness in our witness. Let's look at verses 17 and following. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with, this regard, with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. 
When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and with their ears they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So there's so much in there that we could, if we had more time, we could pull out. The last section there, when he quotes Isaiah, that's a, this is a very stark reminder for all of us that you, if you expose yourself to the gospel, if you expose yourself to Jesus with a hard heart, it has a hardening effect on your soul. Okay, your soul can get inoculated to the, to the gospel if you expose yourself to it with a hard heart. That's what's happening to the Jewish people here and what Paul is warning them of. At the same time, when we expose our hearts to the gospel with that soft heart, the grace of God in our lives, that, that brings his mercy and his grace into our lives in a, in a, in a way that Paul is describing here. Um, but, but just reading through this, if you've been through our, our study of the book of Acts, this should all sound very familiar. Like I said a little bit ago, this is like, here we go again. Paul arrives in a city. He goes to the Jewish leaders. He preaches the gospel. Some of them believe, but most of them end up rejecting what he's saying. And so Paul turns and goes to the Gentiles or to the non-Jewish people instead. And so this is what he had always said he, what his mission was. In Romans 1, 16, this letter he wrote to this, these very Christians in Rome. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, so to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Like as God's chosen people, Paul always went to the the Jewish people saying, uh, the the things that you've been longing for have arrived in Jesus. Okay, in the same way, uh, people that grow up in the church today, we, we, we need to go to one another as, uh, as people who have experienced Christian culture and say, hey, the gospel is the good news of Jesus that we've been longing for. But we also need to go to outside the walls to the, the, the non-Jewish people, to the non-Christians, the non-churchy people, and share the gospel with them. And what, what we see with this is because Paul took courage from the Christians in Rome, bringing him that encouragement, Paul remained faithful to his calling. Okay, so that letter he wrote to the church in Rome eight years earlier said, here is my mission. I'm going to proclaim the gospel to the Jews first and then also to the Greeks. And because Paul was faithful to that, like, the ministry goes forward. So in the same way, even though we experience difficulty and suffering, we are also called through the power of the gospel, through the strength of the spirit supplies, we are called to remain faithful to our calling. And one of the ways we do that is by being bold in our witness, which is where these last two verses of the book of Acts leads us. Verse 30. In 31, it says, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end of Acts. This feels like a round of applause is needed after 40 weeks studying this. But those last two verses really just sum up everything that Paul's life has been about. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus Christ as the king. 
Okay, he, he's proclaiming. That, that's a, a, a proclamation. It's a word that uh, chiefly speaks to our hearts and our emotions and our desires and our longings. And he's also teaching. That, that's a word that speaks mostly to our, our heads and our intellect and our understanding and cognition and all those things. And that's what a full presentation of the gospel always includes. It, it speaks to both your, your heart and your mind. It, it's, it's, your, it's your head uh, and your desires, your emotions, all of those things. And so what he's doing is he's proclaiming the kingdom and he's teaching about Jesus Christ. And so what we see is, is everything that all humans have ever gathered around includes both a kingdom and a king. Okay, so a kingdom is where you find your identity. And then a king is the person or, or thing that you look to to fulfill that identity that you're longing for. Okay, so, so, on, so on Tuesday, we have an election day in our country. And there's many people here in our country that have made their identity their political beliefs. That, that is their kingdom that they are pursuing. And then if that is your kingdom, then you have a king that you hope gains power. You have someone that you hope leads your kingdom to success. Other people, um, we, we have a kingdom of comfort. We think if my life can just be comfortable and go well, then my identity will be secure. And so that kingdom of comfort has a king, whether it's your vacation or your retirement plan or something that brings you comfort. Uh, a lot of us in, in our culture here uh, really place our identity in our families and our significance of whether, whether we're married or not and whether our ki- we have kids or not and whether our kids uh, are successful or not. And so that's our kingdom of this identity of family. And because of that, we look for a king, whether it's our children or our spouse or a significant other, someone to prove that we matter in life. And what Paul is doing with with his gospel proclamation is saying, Jesus is a better king and he brings with him a better kingdom. Okay, the righteous rule and reign of Jesus, the Old Testament talks about it as the shalom of God. It's this beautiful word of, of peace and thriving and everything in the universe working as it was originally designed to by God for the thriving of all of God's creation. That's the kingdom and the king that Paul is proclaiming. And when he does that, when you proclaim boldly, a better kingdom, and a better king. God always produces fruit in that message. I love how it says that he's doing this without hindrance. Only Paul would consider being in prison without hindrance. He's like, I am free to preach the gospel. But what he means by preaching the gospel without hindrance, we see in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul writes this while he's in prison. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What is my arrest and imprisonment in Rome has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here's how the Romans did prison for someone like Paul, who was a Roman citizen. He was in house arrest, and he was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard. Okay, but in order to relieve those guards, they would take four-hour shifts. And so over the course of a day, there'd be eight different guards who would come through, or six different guards who would, my math, it's not, it's kind of a struggle. Uh, Six different guards who would come through and spend four hours chained to Paul. And Paul is like, this is great. This is what you call a captive audience. You literally can't leave while I preach the gospel. And he's saying that over the course of his time in prison, his two years there, every single prison guard in the city of Rome has heard the gospel because they were chained to Paul and listened to his preaching. Isn't that an amazing way to look at that? Um, R.C. Sproul tells a story that when he was a, he was a, a professor at a seminary and Gerald Ford was president and Gerald Ford's son, Mike Ford, was one of his students at the seminary. And so being the president's son, Mike Ford have, had to have two secret 
service guards with him at all times. And so when the semester started, those two secret service guys would stay outside and listen, uh, stay outside the door. But as the semester went on, as Mike Ford evangelized these secret service detachment, uh, they started moving into listening to the lectures and then taking notes and, and then ended up uh, becoming followers of Christ because they were in essence chained to this man who was a believer in Jesus. And just, I think that, that testimony of wherever God has placed you, that is a chance where you can proclaim the gospel without hindrance. Okay? There can be fruit in a bold proclamation, whether it's you're chained to your cubicle or, or, or you're chained to your house and your neighbors or your, your uh, Thanksgiving's coming up. You're going to maybe need to chain yourself to your table for your family gatherings or whatever it is. Just thinking about like God has given you an amazing message, the, the testimony of what Jesus has done. And all of life, we have the ability to proclaim the gospel without hindrance. If prison is not a hindrance for Paul, then nothing in our life should limit us from teaching the gospel. And so, so that, that's the end of the book of Acts. I think this, this naturally, it's a weird ending to the book, right? You're like, what happened next? Uh, so what is the rest of the story? The rest of the story is uh, that the fruit of the gospel continued. Like the gospel continued to advance. At the end of Philippians, Paul writes, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So while Paul is awaiting trial before Caesar, somehow one of the people that he evangelizes ends up sharing the faith with people that are related to Caesar himself, Nero, and even people in Nero's own household and family have come to faith. And, and so if you look at this from a historical perspective, this says that this is two years that Paul spends in Romans or uh, in the prison in Rome. And during that time, he writes the letters of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And even if you know the story of Philemon, it's about this slave named Onesimus who came to faith while, while Paul was in prison. Paul evangelized this Onesimus who was with him. And so if you look at those books, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, those are some of the greatest writings in the history of the world. I mean, like Romans is the most theologically robust letter that Paul wrote. First Corinthians, Galatians, those letters kind of deal with specific problems. But when you look at Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians, you see some of the most beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is. And, and Paul is able to meditate on and proclaim the glory of Jesus and his, uh, his amazing identity because he has this time in prison while he's reflecting on that. Okay, that the hardship of prison was the pressure that produced these gospel pearls of these letters that Paul wrote. Okay, so with that, then we have to ask the question, what happened to Paul after these two, end of these two years? Uh, there's lots of different theories. Um, one of the theories is, well, Luke just finished writing while Paul was in prison, so he wrote the letter at this point, but that's most likely not the case. We think uh, Acts was written probably a decade after this. Um, another theory is that uh, at this point, uh, Paul was convicted and then ended up being martyred by Nero, but it doesn't explain why it's such a positive ending here at the end of, end of the book of Acts. And so what Eusebius, one of the most reliable church historians from the ancient world, the church fathers tells us, is that after this two-year period that Luke talks about here, Paul was released. He went on to Spain. He planted churches in Spain and preached the gospel there. Two years later, he was rearrested when Nero went crazy and started martyring Christians. Uh, he was then beheaded. Uh, he, he lost his life for the gospel. That was the same time that Peter would have been martyred. He was crucified upside down uh, because of his faith in Jesus. And, and over the span of the next few years from that point, 11 of the 12 apostles ended up being martyred. Okay, so, but, but that doesn't answer the question of what's the rest of the story. How did we end up in this gym worshiping Jesus if all of the leaders of the early church were killed for their faith? And, and the reason that we are here is because the church was never about Paul. And the church was never about Peter. This is not the story of how Peter built his church or how Paul built his church. The story of Acts is the story of how Jesus built his church. 
And then since Jesus, Romans already tried killing Jesus once and that didn't work, right? And because of that, Jesus is the one who continued to build his church. And even though all of the leaders of the early church faced suffering and hardship and many of them were killed for their faith, the reason Christianity continued to grow is because it was never about any of the leaders on earth. It was always about King Jesus ruling and reigning from heaven. And because of that, the church grew and expanded. Within 300 years, it had supplanted Rome as the most influential force in the entire world. The, re- the reason that um, Constantine became a Christian was not necessarily, we don't, we don't know his heart, but most likely it wasn't because he had this conversion experience. It's most likely because he recognized everyone in his empire was following Jesus. And if he wanted to lead the Roman Empire, he had to, to say that he followed Jesus as well. Uh, and so from that, like, if you look at um, his history, um, the early church cared for the sick when they were dying of bubonic plague. Okay, the, the early church uh, didn't throw out infant girls because they didn't want little girls. The early church uh, cl- uh, kept their own uh, uh, female offspring and they collected the girls that all their neighbors had thrown out and they raised them as well. The, the early church valued women when the Roman Empire did not and so they experienced a lot of women converts coming to the church. Um, and, and also the early church endured persecution with joy and grace and confidence so much so that it defanged all of the persecutions that the Romans did. Everyone realized there must be something true in what these Christians are saying and believing. And so you put all that together and you say, this little band of Christians, the 70 people in the upper room that we read about in Acts chapter 2, it grows from those 70 people to 2.2 billion people today that somehow claim the name of Jesus and say that they are a Christian or affiliated with Christianity. That's an amazing uh, growth and transformation that has taken place. Uh, All the things from like the Protestant Reformation, uh, John Calvin sent missionaries to Brazil, uh, the uh, reformers in England sent missionaries to America. We're, We're just now learning about how early the Eastern church was as well. The disciples uh, had missions to India and to Africa and the Eastern church has been growing for 2000 years as well. All of that puts together and says the reason that the church continues is because the story of the gospel does not end with the story of Acts. Okay, so I'm not if you've picked up on this, but we're part of the network, Acts 29. And the reason we're Acts 29 is because Acts only has 28 chapters. And the implication is that the story continues, not just through our church and through our church network, but anyone who follows Jesus is called to believe that Jesus is true to his promises, find the encouragement from the means of grace that he gives us, and then be bold in our witness and proclamation as we go out from here. Just like Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay, that's what we're called to be a part of. That's what Christians for 2,000 years have been doing. And by God's grace, that's what we will continue to do until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, these amazing 40 weeks in this, pat- in this book. The fact that we could uh, study the early church and, and how it is that your spirit moved among them to create this uh, uh, gospel movement that has changed the world uh, for the sake of the glory of your son. And so I pray that as we spend some time discussing now for the next few minutes, that you would be in our midst in a special way, that we would uh, feel your love for us and we would bring encouragement to those that are at our tables. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So like I said, we're going to do this a little bit shorter discussion now, and then I'm going to come back up and do a recap of all of the book of Acts here before we do communion and end our time together. So just two questions for you at your table. Uh, if this is your first time here, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. The reason we sit at tables like this is so we can process what God is showing us, and, and um, um, the, these questions are kind of looking back throughout our study of Acts. So uh, if you have been with us throughout our study of Acts, what have you learned? 
What themes stand out and how has this book encouraged you? Just, I'd love to just, if you have been here at all during this series, just share a, 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 a snippet or two of how it is that God has grown you. Uh, and then secondly, do you ever feel hindered in sharing the gospel? Read Acts 28, 31 again. And how does Paul's bold proclamation and teaching without hindrance while in prison encourage you or challenge you? So we'll do that for about five or six minutes, uh, short, shorter time today, and then we'll end uh, studying the, recapping the entire book of Acts, right? Let's go. All right, let's bring it back together. I always have such immense guilt when I have to cut off our discussion time early like this. I hear it sounds like a lot of good discussion is happening. I would encourage you to continue those discussions uh, after church today or on the drive home if you're with your family or roommate or uh, maybe go out to lunch with people at your table and continue processing this. Um, it's also a good reminder of why our DCs are so important. The conversations we begin here, we continue in our small groups. And so if you haven't yet joined a DC, that is the uh, front line of care and discipleship. And we can't encourage everyone enough to get uh, plugged into one of those groups to continue studying God's word. So um, my original plan when I laid out this uh, preaching calendar was to spend a whole week, a uh, whole Sunday morning, just recapping all that Acts, uh, we have learned in Acts, but uh, spending a couple of weeks in Germany with my brother, threw away all of my plans, so I'm trying to kind of push this into one uh, little short 10-minute section here. But what, um, what I love about uh, God's Word and the, the beauty of gathering as God's people to study it is, is every time we do, there's something that stands out of like, this is what I feel that the Holy Spirit has for us to take away from studying God's word. Like it's not my words or whoever preaches that has authority. It's only Jesus' words in the scriptures uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit that have that authority in our lives. So this morning we see that, you know, if Jesus is true to his promises, if he provides us means for encouragement, then we can be bold and faithful in our witness and proclamation of the gospel. And that's, that, that right there is a truth that's worth clinging to. Uh, the amazing thing about God's word though is we have 39 other things that we've studied throughout this last year and a half. And each of those is, is, is impactful and significant and important for, for all of us. And so what I want to do is just take like to the next few minutes to just recap. It's only 10 of the themes that have kind of stood out from our study of the book of Acts. There's, there's much more we could dive into. But my prayer here is that this would be a way of kind of tying a bow on this amazing experience we've had uh, as a church. I, I joke about wandering in the desert for 40 weeks. It, after a long series, it gets kind of repetitive. But the truth is, is God has had something for each of us in each and every single one of the times we've gathered to study his word. And so just by trying to recap it in my prayers that we would kind of be reminded of how the Holy Spirit has brought encouragement to us through the study of this book of Acts. Uh, we're not, I'm not uh, sure where we're going to go next. That's probably going to be First Peter or Philippians. It's continuing to pray about that, but I'll be looking forward to starting a new book with you guys here soon. So uh, here's just some, some of the things that stood out. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 1, and maybe you might be able to just, as you look at the headings even, be able to kind of gather where we're, we're getting some of these themes from. But the first one is that um, what, what we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, is, is, is Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with the issues that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And so Luke, uh, the book of Acts is really part two of Luke's writings. He wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And that word at the very beginning is so key for understanding the whole book of Acts. He says, I've already told you what Jesus began to do. And what he's implying then is that the book of Acts is not a new story about someone else doing something different. It's what Jesus continues to do through the church in the book of Acts. And so we see that the work Jesus began to do, he will continue to do because the same spirit that empowered Jesus indwells you. And that's such an important concept from the book of Acts is that, that as followers of Christ, what we see in Acts chapter 2 with Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls, is every single person who considers Jesus their Savior, who has put their faith in him, who has, has looked to Jesus 
as for salvation, who is relying on his grace and his grace alone. Every single person who has done that is filled with the Holy Spirit and completely full of the Holy Spirit. We all have God himself, the Spirit, dwelling within us. And that means that the same types of things that you read about in the book of Acts is the things that we are called to do as well. We're not in a different category as 21st century American Christians. It's the same work that Jesus began to do. He is continuing to do through his Holy Spirit indwelling his people. And so that indwelling, the second thing we see is the indwelling spirit produces a vibrant, caring, winsome community on mission. So if you look at Acts 2, 42 and following, Luke says, and they, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so, so that, that, that is a picture of what a healthy church is and does uh, and embodies. And so when we talk about rebuild, like how do we rebuild out of this season of COVID in 2020 and all the turmoil that we went through, the, 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 the target that we have is a healthy, vibrant church that cares for one another, that's winsome with our non-Christian neighbors, that presents an attractive presentation of the gospel because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. And that's something that we're all called to do. Okay, so the next phrase that we, we've, we, we're going to have on the screen behind me is that when, when, all gave, when all give some, none will have to give all. And we're all familiar with that military expression that says uh, all, all gave some and some gave all. And, and the unfortunate truth in, in American Christianity is this thing called the 80-20 rule, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And, and in that equation, what happens is, is most give none and therefore some have to give all. And, and a lot of people burn out and end up getting discouraged because they're carrying too much of the weight in the local church. And so what we see is if you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, God has equipped you and gifted you and called you to ministry. And that means that when we all give some, none of us will have to give all. We'll all be a part of this healthy, vibrant body pulling together. Uh, and that pulling together doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. The next thing we see is that opposition is an opportunity because if the gospel is true, the threats are empty. And so as you go on from Acts uh, 3 and 4 and up through uh, chapter 7, uh, culminating in chapter 8 with the martyrdom of uh, uh, Stephen, we see that opposition always exists to where the gospel is advancing. Okay, we, we have an enemy that opposes what it is that Jesus is doing, but opposition is an opportunity to preach the gospel. And a lot of times our words will have greater significance in the midst of the difficulties that we are experiencing. And the reason that's the case is because if the gospel is true, the threats are empty. Like, what was the worst thing that they did to Stephen? They killed him. Well, what does that mean? He's with the presence of Jesus and is experiencing the fullness of joy for eternity. I mean, like, if the gospel is true, whatever threats they come against us are empty because of that. And so because of that, we also see that the next thing is that the gospel not only brings personal redemption, but also corporate reconciliation. So when the church scattered because of the Paul's persecution, in Acts chapter 8, we see that, that one of the places that they went was to Samaria. 
And, and the Jewish people, all at this point, the church is made up of Jewish believers. The Jews hated Samaritans. They saw them as, as half-breeds, people who had abandoned the faith of their fathers and had built their own temple and were abandoning what Yahweh had called them to. There was a deep hatred between Jews and Samaritans. But we see the gospel comes to Samaria and it not only brings personal redemption, saves individuals, but also brings corporate reconciliation. Okay, so, so the Samaritans then speak in tongues and receive the Holy Spirit just as the Jewish people did in Acts chapter 2. And then later on in Acts chapter, I think it's 12, we see that when uh, the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, they also receive a Pentecost and they, re- they receive the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues in the same way. And, and all these different divisions that existed are brought together because the gospel brings personal redemption and also corporate reconciliation. If there's ever a message that our divided, fractured American church needs right Right now it's that. Okay, if our identity and our allegiance is to Christ Jesus, then I don't really care what your politics are. Right? If you love Jesus, then we can worship together. Okay, if, if you love Jesus, then your opinions of secondary matters like baptism or the gifts of the Spirit or anything like that, we can put that aside and say we are working together because Jesus is worthy of our worship and he's the one who brings unity. And so the chief obstacles to, well, so that means a fruitful ministry flows from faithful obedience. I think that's probably, if you could sum up the main takeaway that I pray our church has through the study of the book of Acts is that each and every one of us has a ministry. There's this really unhelpful phrase that people use of, of being called into the ministry. And like, if you work for a church, you are in the ministry. And, and that's such a bogus way of thinking about it. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have the Spirit, and he has called you to a ministry. You have something, that some sphere of influence, some spiritual gifts that God has given you so that you can build the kingdom and point people to the glory of his Son. And that's also true for us as a church. It's not like some of us as a church have a ministry and others of us don't. Together, corporately, we have a ministry. So, so here's the reality. Uh, God has given us 35 to 40% of our church as kids, fifth grade and under. So guess what that means? If you are called to our church, you are called to children's ministry. Okay, whether that means just praying for and supporting the volunteers or whether it means grabbing a blue shirt and serving back there, discipling the young hearts. As a church, we have all been called to a ministry. You are, you are called to disciple the people at your discussion tables. You're called to love and care for the men and women in your D.C. You are called to evangelize your neighbors and take the good news of Jesus to your street and to the ends of the earth. We are all filled with the Spirit, therefore we all have uh, a call to a ministry. And fruitful ministry flows from faithful obedience. Uh, the chief obstacles to our obedience, though, is things that get in the way of our affections. We have idols. We have, we have other things that we would long to find significance in instead of Jesus. And those, those false gods, those false saviors will inevitably let us down. And when our idols let us down, we're filled with anxiety and anger, and we want to rush to our idol's defense in order to make sure that it's okay. Okay, but what we saw from Acts, uh, when the, the riot took place in Ephesus, or when all the Jewish people would persecute Paul, what we're seeing is that if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? Okay, like, like if your identity is built around the fact that people like you, as soon as someone doesn't like you, you're going to have to rush to your idol's defense and do whatever you can to win their approval. What you're trying to do is you're trying to save your God. But if your God needs saving, what makes you think it could ever save you? Jesus is such a better savior to rely on and go to. Um, and, and the reason for that is because uh, Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, and Jesus is over you. Uh, therefore, life is going to be okay. 
I, I think that's one of the most important messages that God had for me in this, in this series was that Paul in prison receives the, the vision of Jesus, shows up in his prison cell. He says, take courage, I'm with you. Uh, we see Jesus' sovereignty lived out as he guides all the steps of the Roman leaders so that Paul is kept safe. And we see that Paul's identity as a citizen of heaven is his most important thing. And so when we experience suffering, we're all tempted to go to one another and say, hey, it's going to be okay. And those words, it's going to be okay, are hollow and worthless when they come from our lips. But when they come from the fact that Jesus is with you, Jesus is for you, and Jesus is over you, that is a good foundation to, of why we can believe that life is going to be okay because Jesus is all of those things. And so that means that when we experience unfair things in life, uh, that we, like when it says um, when the, the, the best way to push through the unfairness of life is to rest in the unfairness of the gospel. So, so Jesus with you, for you, and over you is nothing that any of us deserve, right? Like, like which of us deserve to have the perfect son of God take our sins upon himself and die in our place and rise again three days later? Right? That, that is the most unfair exchange in the history of the universe, that we give him our sin and we get his righteousness and affection in return. That's the most unfair thing that's ever happened. So therefore, when we experience suffering, when we experience persecution or hardship, when we feel like life is unfair, we can turn to the unfairness of the gospel and know that it's going to be okay. And because of that, that means that we can trust Jesus with how we get where we're going. Uh, like Paul's uh, journey to Rome had uh, the shipwreck, all kinds of different detours and hardships. He, he got bit by a snake, like all these things he was not wanting to happen. But if God is the one who has determined where we are going, we can trust him with how we get there. Okay, and I think that's uh, a good lesson for all of us in this, uh, like I said, the season of rebuild where the church in America feels like it's a, a wreck. A lot of the reasons why it feels like it's a wreck, because if, if we're honest, our souls feel like they are a wreck. There's a lot of hardship going on in our lives and in our, our marriages and our families and our streets and our workplaces, all these things. And in the midst of that hardship, we're, we're tempted to say, I don't want my life to be difficult. I just want my life to get better. Okay, but the truth is, is God always grows us through pain. And God and his sovereign love for us, he uses that pain in our lives redemptively to bring about growth and maturity. And so because of that, Jesus is with you, he's for you, he's over you, it's going to be okay. And as he directs your path, if we, we know that he's determined where we're going, we have an eternal home in the presence of his, him as our savior, the fullness of joy forevermore, all those things, he's determined where we're going. So because of that, we can trust him on those steps of how we get there. Right? And, and, and here's why that's, that's true. Here's why that's valuable. It's because we are, are not following a God who remained aloof and distant and kept his own comfort and safety in heaven and told us what to do. Said we're following a savior who took on human flesh, who lived 33 years of life on this earth and, and hard and difficult conditions, way more difficult than any of our lives. He experienced rejection and persecution, uh, hatred. Uh, his own family abandoned him. Um, the people that were called to by his side abandoned him at his, his most desperate hour. All of those things he endured because the path that God had for him was the path to the cross. Because through his death on the cross, when he took our sins upon himself, he paid the price, the penalty that we deserved. And when he rose again three days later, defeating sin and death, that's the reason why we can come to believe all of these statements. Because we know that God is with us, uh, for us, and is over us. So we're going to end our, our morning now with a time of worship. Uh, we always, whenever you study the Bible, you always respond in worship. And we, a lot of times when we hear worship, we think it's only singing, right? Like worship is the songs that we do. But worship is the heart posture and the lifestyle that we live in response to what Jesus has done for us. 
So when you come to the communion table uh, at one of these uh, corners around the gym, uh, the reason we serve open communion is because Jesus offers an open invitation. If you are here and you are a follower of Jesus, come to these tables, take the elements with you, the little cracker, the little bit of juice that reminds you that Jesus' body was broken for you. Jesus' blood was shed for you. And that substitutionary sacrifice on your behalf is the reason that all of these beautiful truths from the book of Acts apply to you and me. We also respond by prayer. So uh, I'll be in the back corner there. If you would like prayer for anything, I would love to pray for you uh, and with you. So if you are able, would you join me in standing Uh, And I will pray as we end our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the ways that you love us. Uh, It's impossible for us to to truly grasp the depth of your affection for us. Uh, Lord, but we get the clearest glimpse of that when we look to the cross. When we see that your love uh, so consumed you that you were willing to die in our place. And to send your son to die in our place. So I pray that as we take these elements, I pray that the, the bread would nourish our souls by pointing us to the fact that you took on flesh out of your love for us and that your flesh was broken uh, on the cross. Well, God, as we take the juice, may it remind us that our sins have been washed away by the blood of your son and that if we have been cleansed through his sacrifice, then there is no guilt or shame that can ever hold over us. God, as we sing your praises through song, I pray that you would be glorified here, that you would, uh, we would all feel our hearts stirred and our affections drawn to you as the only one who is worthy of our worship. That's in your name we pray.